that is defined by your sacrifice on the cross for us. Uh, not by our, our personal background or our ethnic identity or our uh, skill sets or anything like that. Father, we are a people defined by your work in our lives. And you make it clear that that people in your uh, ultimate plan for the world is made up of those that are drawn from, as you say in the Bible, every tribe, tongue, and nation. People all over the world made in your image, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, worshiping you. What a joy to get a little taste of that this morning as we have gathered as a diverse group of people from lots of different backgrounds to honor and praise your name. And Father, we recognize that we are part of a diverse nation of uh, millions of people from lots of different backgrounds. We pray for our nation, knowing that you care for the people of this and every other nation as well. God, we ask that your name would be made great in this nation, that more and more people would seek to find the deepest answers to their deepest concerns in the gospel of Jesus. And we pray that we, as your church, would be faithful in living it and proclaiming it so that people can see you as true and beautiful. God, as we pray for the nation, I'm very much aware, as, as certainly all of us are, that, that our nation is, though diverse, still uh, racked with ethnic tensions. Many of those have been uh, stoked and talked about lately, and we so easily slide into a who said what and who started it and what's real and whose fault is it. Father God, we realize these are not problems in our country that go away easily, and so we're asking you that you would bring about um, a healthy uh, decrease of some of the ethnic tension in our country. We recognize the, the role that, that racism has played in perpetrating violence in countries all over the world throughout history. And we look at the history of our own nation and realize we're not exempt from that. And so we pray for our country now. We pray that this would be a place where people are um, treated with dignity because they are human beings first and foremost. And that even as we uh, push against one another's ideas and disagree within um, who we are as a people, God, we pray that the basic dignity of people would be respected and honored. And so we ask, God, that you would help us with that as a country, because we know that reflects your own heart. And speaking of us, Father, I, I pray for, for us, for the members of this church, those of us who belong to your family. We pray that we would be, first and foremost, a gospel people in how we see one another and relate to one another. That we would understand, as you've told us from your word, every human being was made in your image and bears that image and is valuable because of it. And that we are part of, of a train that's going somewhere and the destination of this train is members of all tribes, tongues, and nations gathered around your throne. And so, Father God, we confess the extent uh, to which we are not immune from sin. Although we hate it, in this church, and we don't want to be characterized by it, we admit that we are not immune to it. Forgive us for the times that we have seen people as something other than made in your image, perhaps seen them based on their lifestyle choices, maybe their skin color, uh, maybe their political affiliations, and seeing those things first rather than seeing precious people made in your image for whom you died and whom you are welcoming into eternal family relationship with you and therefore with us. Fathers, we confess those sins in our own lives. We pray for your forgiveness as you promised in 1 John 1.9. We pray for your cleansing, that you would help us to see the way you see. We pray that, that people from all tribes, tongues, and nations would feel welcome when they walk in these doors on a Sunday morning. 
that this would be a place that it is immediately evident that we are defined uh, not by socioeconomic class or political affiliation or any of those other things, that we are defined first and foremost by the gospel of Jesus and the God who loved us enough, the Father who loved us enough that he gave his only son. And knowing that you who gave your only son would not then freely deny anything else to us. You already love us beyond measure. And God, I pray that that love that we that experience from you would extend from us to everyone who walks through these doors. Because you've given us a glorious purpose in that and a glorious end to look forward to. You are glorious, you are loving, and you are generous in the future hope of being with you for all eternity, united as one people around the glory of God. I can't wait for that day. We look forward to that day. And I pray by your mercy that we would experience a taste of that even now as your church gathers to worship and hear from you. We ask these things for our good and for your glory in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. You may be seated. And thank you, team, again for leading us, uh, Kathy and Nick. We so appreciate you guys. They will be back to close our service as we sing to God in song again in a few moments. Right now, we're going to turn our attention to the Bible and God's Word. So I want to encourage you to take uh, the Bible you brought with you, whether it's one of these old-fashioned kind that are actually on paper, uh, or whether it's one of those newfangled digital kinds uh, that may be on one of these things. Go ahead and turn it to the book of First John in the New Testament. And if you'd like to, you can borrow the Bible in the rack that's in front of you. I uh, would be happy for you to do that as well. We're closing out a series of sermons through this New Testament book that we've been in with just a couple of short breaks, including one break last weekend. But we come now to the end of kind of trying to wrap this entire book up. Five chapters, we've had 11 or 12 sermons, just kind of walking through, as we like to do here at Harvest, uh, a, a book of the Bible from start to finish, and just sort of catch the flow of thought, like what's being said here? Where's this coming from? What does God want us as modern Christians to take away from this? And that's what we've done in this study all throughout. And we're going to wrap that up this morning. As we're getting ready to do that, I want to ask you a question that pertains to the way I think the Apostle John, who wrote this book, uh, kind of wraps it up and what he emphasizes in his conclusion. And the question is, uh, how do you feel when somebody critiques your work. The fact that a number of you just giggled encourages me that maybe I'm not alone <laughs> in that that may be a little bit of a, well, uh, kind of awkward question, right? Um, like, does it energize you when somebody says, hey, I saw what you do there, you know, I mean, that was good, that was good, but like, this is the way it should really be done, you know? There's a reason all your golf balls are flying off to the right when you're not aiming that way, right? You know, here's how your swing should look. And are you like, that's great, I want to tell me more, tell me more, because I just want to be the best, you know, golfer or whatever it is I can be. Does critique energize you because you love getting better or does it shame you because you feel like a failure? I've been swinging a golf club for how many years? And somebody comes along and tells me I'm doing it wrong. I feel like an idiot. If I admit they're right, then what's been wrong with me, right? I mean, like, I've been doing it wrong. I feel like a failure. Or is it a kind of weird mix of the two? That last one is kind of probably where I land. It tends to be a weird mix of the two. Like, I get really kind of energized when people show me how I'm doing, what I'm doing, and how I could do it better. Uh, because I want to get better at stuff, and I get really interested in how can I get better at what I'm doing. But sometimes, at the very same moment, it's kind of weird, there will be this kind of sense of like, oh my gosh, they're right. Why didn't I see that before? 
what's wrong with me? I had one of those experiences last year. One of the things that I participate in regularly is a uh, kind of a, a workshop, a, it's not really a conference, but it's sort of like a conference where uh, a bunch of, of pastors and Bible teachers get together every year and just work on getting better at studying the Bible and preparing Bible lessons or sermons or whatever. And uh, so it's just one of the things that I do to connect with other pastors in the area. And we, the, the way it's set up, you, you, you don't actually just get taught, like you actually do work, you prepare Bible lessons and then you share them with one another and then you all critique one another and help one another get better. It's kind of like, a, oh, really? Okay. So last year, uh, I was at this thing, and I was, it was my turn, and I was running through one of my kind of outlines of a passage I'd been assigned and how I would approach it if I was preaching a sermon on it. Um, and then it came time for the group that I was with to critique me, and one of the members of that group is a good friend of mine. Uh, he's actually going to be here preaching in a couple of weeks, so two or three Sundays from now, you'll get a chance to meet him. You'll have to ask him if he remembers this. He probably doesn't. Uh, <laughs> He got to go first, and he said, well, here's what I liked about you, this, this, this was really good. And then he pointed out something, he's like, now, at this point, if you're preaching through this text, like, why wouldn't you bring this up? He pointed out a connection between what the Bible was saying and a really um, obvious aspect of church life that is almost so obvious, it's just like, how could you not say that? And I hadn't said it. And he was like super nice about it. He's like, is there sort of like a reason you were that stupid? No. <laughs> Actually, that's what I heard him say. I think what he said was, you know, like, can you, what, what was the thought process of why'd you put in there? When, and, you know, was there a reason? And like the minute he, he started talking, I knew what he was talking about. And I looked down at my work and I'm like, he's right. I mean, there's just something right there. I missed it. I completely missed it. This is not the first sermon I've preached. I've been doing this a long time. Like, I should not have missed it. It's obvious. I knew he was right. And I was able to tell him afterwards, like, man, thank you. That was really helpful. And to this day, obviously, I still remember it. <laughs> but there was another, and I was genuine about that. I'm like, thank you. That was really good. On the other hand, part of me was like, how could I miss that? That was stupid. I want to look good in front of my fellow pastors, not stupid. You know, I don't know how that that fits you, but sometimes getting critiqued, shown how to do it right, that is, uh, can be an intimidating thing. And I bring that up because that really has kind of been one of the dominant themes of this, this book of 1 John in the New Testament. It's all about, like, what's the genuine gospel? What's the real thing? And of course, the reason that, that John is telling his readers that is because there's a lot of gospels out there that aren't the real thing, but they kind of look like it, they kind of smell like it, they kind of taste like it, so maybe it's real, maybe it's not. And he's like, no, wrong, right. you got to be over here. But the interesting thing is, the reason he's so insistent on differentiating, here's the wrong gospel, here's the right gospel, is because he says, if you build your life on the right gospel, you will have powerful confidence in your life and in your relationship with God. And that's what I want for you. So he expects that the, the critique of our belief system will lead to confidence. Sometimes it does. But for some of us, it can also lead to shame. How long have I been a Christian? And I was still unclear on that. <laughs> does clarity lead to confidence? John brings this back up as he wraps up the book. And we're in chapter 5 this morning, uh, verses 13 down to the end of the book in verse 21. And we really kind of have three simple points. Verse 13 is sort of a summary statement of the whole book. Um, then the majority of the rest of this passage, 14 all the way down to 19, is, is an application, a specific calling to pray for one another in a specific way. That's where we're going to spend the most of our time because that's where the most of the 
the, the words are, the text is this morning. And then he just ends with a couple of verses that just kind of uh, encourage us and wrap the whole thing up together. So that first point, chapter 5, verse 13, is really a summary statement of the entire book. In fact, if you uh, remember, we alluded to this the very first day we started studying 1 John, chapter 5, verse 13, as really kind of a sense of where John is going with this entire book. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. There it is. I mean, it couldn't be more plain. He just flat out says, if you, like, if you take nothing else away from, from this book, you're like, what am I supposed to get out of reading and studying the book of 1 John? He just told us in as plain a language as he could. Here's why I wrote it. So that you who believe that you're Christians, that you would know for sure that that's true. That you would have an unshakable confidence in your relationship with God and in the fact that you have eternal life. John believes that, that the clarity he's pressed for so much in this letter, this is not the gospel. This is what a false gospel looks like. This is what a true gospel is. Don't mix the two. You can't get away with kind of fudging it like this. And he just keeps pounding that issue. And he believes his desire is that that would lead for us to tremendous confidence in our own relationship with God. Sometimes, as we've said, clarity does lead to confidence. It's really helpful. It's great. On the other hand, as we've said, sometimes we find more comfort when things are a little less clear and a little more vague and fuzzy. You know? Because if a standard is fuzzy, I can be convinced that I'm probably doing an okay job of meeting it. It's not until we really kind of drill down into the brass tacks and, and somebody comes along and says, hey, here's how it should be done that I might find I'm not doing as well as I thought. I could say, I think I'm, I'm probably doing an all right job being preaching every Sunday, generally. And then somebody comes along and says, yeah, but why did you do this here? And it's like, oh, <laughs> well, now it's clear. And sometimes that actually doesn't lead to confidence. Sometimes that can lead us to sort of self-shaming. Here's the great thing, though, about clarity on the gospel of Jesus. If we're actually focused on the gospel of Jesus, it undermines self-shaming in a way that it has to lead to confidence. And here's what I mean by that. On the one hand, my, my fellow pastors could critique the way that I lead or the way I teach the Bible and find, you know, holes in it, and they would be right because that's all about how I'm handling the word of God and, and, and executing the task that God has given me to do. But the gospel's a little bit different than that. The gospel is the good news. That's what the word gospel means. The good news that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, has died for our sins in our place. So he lived the righteous life for us. We couldn't live. He died the sinner's death for us. We should have died. And because he did both of those things in our place, we can be forgiven and reunited with God the Father. Now here's the thing about that. If that message is your focus and then I immediately say oh why didn't I, I wasn't as clear about that as I should have been shame on me what is wrong with me I'm falling short of God's standards do you see what I just did I just moved off the gospel the gospel is you fall short of God's standards so does everybody right all have sinned, the Bible tells us, and fall short of God's glory. It's right there in plain English. The good news is Jesus Christ has substituted himself for us anyway. His righteousness for our failure, his death for our punishment. 
And if I'm actually focusing there, then what I'm focusing on is not so much me, it's, it's him and what he did. I, maybe put it this way. Rather than the, the question of like, what's wrong with me? If I'm really actually focusing on the true, real, genuine, clear gospel, it automatically sort of forces me to reframe my questions and, and, and the things that I observe. Rather than seeing first and foremost how I don't measure up, the gospel is forcing me to see how Christ measured up for me. So rather than the question like, why didn't I measure up? What I end up doing is saying, oh my gosh, look how much God loves me. The beautiful thing about the message of Scripture is that it takes my focus off of me and it puts it onto him. The gospel is not about what I have done or not done. It is about what Christ has done and how that impacts me. Me and my stuff comes in after that. So I think that's the idea of the Bible insisting that that clarity on the gospel actually leads us to confidence. We just have to understand it clearly and actually root our lives in it, which is the whole message of this morning. That's how the Apostle John closes this letter, with an exhortation for us to root our lives in the real gospel, because that invariably leads to great confidence in our relationship with God, because it's all about what he's done for us, not what we have failed to do or can do for him. So what about you? What is your first instinctive, maybe, reaction when you hear about Jesus dying for your sins? Like, before you have time to think and come up with the right, you know, churchy answer that you're supposed to give, like, what is your initial sort of gut response to that? Does your heart immediately move to, like, self-shame? Look how awful I am that God would have to become man and die to clean up my mess. Like, that's how bad I am. It's horrible that Jesus would have to go through something like that for me. I must be an awful... Does it go to shame? Or... Maybe not shame. Does your heart immediately go to that striving road of determination? Wow, it's amazing what God did for me. How could I ever repay that? And so I'm immediately thinking about how I'm going to live for him and how I'm going to make it worth his while and I'm going to show him that he didn't mess up when he died for me because, of, because I'm going to live a righteous life that's going to make God happy, that's going to be worthy of the sacrifice he made for me. Or does your heart naturally just move to awe and praise of God? Because my first thought isn't about me, it is about the amazing God who did this for me. What is your reaction and why? I think that's what John wants us to think about. Does clarity in the gospel lead to confidence? Well, he moves from that summary statement into making a a new and fresh application of it, I think as a way to show how confidence in my relationship with God leads to confidence that God is moving and participating in my life. That's what verses 14 to 19 are all about. Here he actually tells us that if we're building our lives on the gospel, we are going to, as Christians, pray for one another in in a specific way we'll get to in just a second. He says that's the natural outworking. Our confidence in building our lives on the gospel shapes our life together as a church. And just before we kind of dive into what he's saying there, let me mention that this is one of those passages in the Bible, uh, verses 16 and 17 in particular, we heard it read earlier by Julia, that is a little bit confusing because he starts talking about like, well, there's some sin that leads to death. And we're like, oh my gosh, what is that? I don't know what that is, but that sounds pretty bad. 
Um, and then there's some sin that doesn't lead to death, which sounds weird because elsewhere the Bible says like the wages of sin is death. Doesn't all sin lead? You know, so it's like, and, what, and you're supposed to pray for one or not the other. Or like verses 16 and 17 in particular are kind of weird. <laughs> they're, they're a little bit sticky. Um, at least they are to us as modern readers. Uh, there's a few other places in the Bible that can sort of be like this because of the way certain words are chosen. It's not abundantly clear to us 21st century readers exactly what the original author had in mind. Um, probably it was, um, in almost all these cases, it was much more clear to the original readers like 2,000 years ago. He's probably using, uh, you know, turns of a phrase or, or, or word pictures or things that they would have been very familiar with, uh, but it's a little bit more obscure to us. So in working through this, we're going to talk about what I think that means. I'm, I'm reasonably confident that I think I understand it rightly, but, but here's the good news. Um, whatever exactly he meant by those words, it doesn't change the point of the passage. The point's really, really clear. And in fact, I think what he means by some of those funny words becomes more clear when we see the larger point of the passage. So rather than jumping into the strange verses about like a sin that leads to death and one that doesn't, and like, what does that mean? We're going to get there in a minute, but I'd actually rather go from high level down to low. Okay, we're going to look at the forest first and then we'll come back to that tree. And hopefully that tree will make a little more sense in light of the forest. So if you'll bear with me a moment, let's just kind of follow the flow of thought here through these verses. The ultimate point that really doesn't change, I think it's fairly clear, is that confidence in our standing with God leads us to confidently pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ in their struggle against sin. Confidence in our standing with God leads us to confidently pray for one another, specifically in our struggle against sin. This is one of the ways that we love one another as a church. There's basically three ideas here as you kind of go down through these verses. First of all, verses 14 and 15. Uh, confidence that we belong to God leads to confidence in praying to him. That's where he starts in verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that is God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Whoa, just stop right there and let that one soak in for a second. That's a bold statement. This is our confidence. We ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And it gets even more um, bold in its promise in verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. I can actually talk to God in prayer according to this passage and be absolutely confident that he's not only hearing me, but he's going to act on what I'm saying. Does that characterize your prayer life? A lot of times with mine, I'm not really quite so sure I have that level of confidence. What's going on here? He gives us the reasons. He gives us two reasons in these verses. First of all, verse 14, confidence that we're God's children gives us confidence that he hears us when we pray because he, he loves us, um, because he loves us. That's, that's where we get moving right out of verse 13. He says, once you know for sure that you have eternal life, that leads you to confidence that when you ask God something, he's listening because he already loves you. Here's another way of saying, I think what the Bible's getting at here. The gospel of Jesus takes the idea that God doesn't care about me and therefore he's not listening to me completely off the table. It's just, it's just gone. That, that's not an option. <laughs> because, as the Bible has said elsewhere, God has 
freely given us, uh, has graciously given us his son, his own son. So how will he not also together with his son freely give us all things? In other words, the logic of God's love, if I could put it that way, in the gospel is super clear. God has given us the most valuable thing he could, his very own son, and he did it out of love for us. So since he's already given us the maximum he could when we were at our worst and we were still sinning and we didn't deserve it, we can be absolutely sure that he cares for us. Whatever else may be going on in my relationship with God or whatever else may be you know, hindering my prayer life or making me think God uh, isn't listening. Man, the idea that God doesn't love me if I'm a Christian as his daughter, as his son, it just takes that, that's, that's not even an option. It's totally taken off the table. So we can have confidence that God is listening to us when we pray, first of all, if we ourselves are Christians. That means we're united to him. His spirit is in us. We're his children. He cares for us. He's listening. That's the first point of confidence but there's double confidence. Verse 15, we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. Um, Sorry, at the end of verse 14, uh, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So when we pray for things that already line up with what God has explicitly said he's already interested in, guess what? He's really interested in hearing and answering those prayers because he's already told us that. That's what it means to pray according to God's will. When when we ask God to do things that he has already told us he desperately wants to see happen, well, then that's now double confidence that God will answer those prayers. He's listening to me because I'm his kid and he already loves me, but I'm also not just asking him for like to give me what I want or give somebody else what they want. I'm asking him for explicit things that he has willed. Now, sometimes there's a lot of things we don't know what God's will is. Um, somebody just got sick. Is it God's will to heal them? Um, somebody lost a job or had some other tragedy in their life, got injured. Is it, is it God's will to restore all of that? Well, maybe it is, maybe it's not. We still pray about those things, and we should. But what he's talking about here is when we're praying about things that God has explicitly said, this is my will for your life. For example, your sanctification. That's a fancy kind of Bible word of saying, becoming a more holy person. The Bible says, God, this is God's will for your life. It's pretty clear. Your sanctification. And specifically in that context, it's that we would abstain from sexual immorality. That's a pretty clear statement. What does God want for me? What is God's will for my life? To become more holy. Unequivocal. <laughs> no worrying about, gee, is this God's will or not? What's that? That's what he wants for you and me. So when we pray for that, guess what? We can have confidence he's listening and that he will apply himself to that prayer. And that's actually where John goes next. What we're specifically praying for one another is victory over sin. That's the application he makes in verse 16. So this is now our second point. We get this double confidence that we belong to him and we're praying for his will. We can know he's going to listen. So what do we pray? Verse 16, anyone sees his brother, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, once again, set that aside for a moment, we'll come back to that in a minute, Um, he shall ask and God will give him life. It's interesting, he says, um, if a Christian sees another Christian committing a sin, he shall ask, meaning he shall pray to God to give that person life that is victory over the sin. And it doesn't say he should ask. 
it's not an ought, it's an is. It doesn't say you should pray for your brothers and sisters when you see them sinning. It says if you belong to God and you see your brother and sister sinning, that's just what you do. You just pray for them. (laughs) He's assuming that the natural outworking of the gospel in our lives is that we love one another by praying for one another when we see one another struggling with sin because we want to see God's will accomplished in one another's lives. And he then um, adds a promise to it. Oh, actually, before I get to the promise, I wanted to point out, the praying for one another in the struggling with sin is a very specific direction of, of not only how to pray, but how to love one another. Earlier in this letter, again, remember, John is summarizing stuff here. He's already made it clear that a mark of the genuine gospel is that it works out in love that Christians have for one another. And he made it very clear that that love is tangible. It's action-oriented. It's not just an emotion or an expression of intent. It's actually action. It might involve time. It might involve money. It might involve acts of compassion. But like we care for one another in very real ways. Love now, in addition to that, that's all still true, he's also saying one of the other ways that we love one another is we intentionally pray for other people in our church, other Christians... And we specifically pray for them in their struggle against sin. That's how we love one another. I have to ask myself, like, how much of my praying for you guys is characterized by praying for your victory over sin? Some of it is. A lot of it isn't. If that's not the only thing we pray for one another... Bad things happen to people. We pray that God would bring them comfort when people are grieving. We pray that God would heal those who are sick. Those are all very legitimate prayers. Um, We should pray that. Nothing in here takes that away. But again, he's talking about a very specific kind of prayer. It says, we love one another because we're rooted in the gospel that manifests itself in praying for one another in our struggle against sin, which also implies that we're actually close enough to one another that we kind of know what one another's sin are. Uh, we talked about this passage earlier in our staff meeting this week, and that got brought up at some point in the conversation. This idea that, do I even know what sins brothers and sisters in Christ are struggling with? Not even just the ones that they may tell me about and say, hey, I'm wrestling with this, would you pray for me? That's great, but what about people in my community life group or, or other people that I'm just close to in my local church, and I'm just doing life with them enough that I can see where their struggles are? Man, maybe they don't even know they're struggling there yet, but I can see this this deep attitude of bitterness and resentment growing in them because of a tough relationship that they're in. Maybe with a difficult boss or, or a tough spouse. And yeah, that, like that relationship is tough and that's, that's a real problem and, and they have a legitimate um, you know, concern about it. But, but as this goes on, like I can see them becoming more and more bitter. I can see the sin growing in them. What's my natural response as a Christian? I pray for that. This is my brother or sister in Christ. I need to intercede for God that that root of bitterness would be cut off and that by the power of his spirit in them, he would free them from it. By the way, there's a lot of different ways we can pray for one another. And so a quick 15-second commercial. I did not have to pay Google for it, but let me just throw this in there. Um, Starting in a couple of Sundays, we're going to begin a six-week sermon series just looking at six different prayers in the Bible, three from the Old Testament, three from the New Testament, as models of how we can pray. They're not even the only six in there. We're just going to look at six of them. And so I encourage you to, to come and engage with that because we're going to see all the different kinds of ways the Bible models praying. Um, 
and it's very instructive, it's very helpful. John's telling us confident prayer is for one another. I'm confident that God's listening to me because I'm his child. I'm confident he's listening to me because I'm praying for his will, that my brother or sister in Christ would be holy. That's clearly his will for them. So I'm praying for you. And what a gift that is. What a gift it is to have people around us who know enough of what we're really struggling with that they say, I love you, I trust you, you're still my brother and sister, and I'm going to go to bat for you. What a precious gift to be able to know that like this week, I have people going to bat for me and praying that, that, that God would help me overcome maybe the bitterness and pain of being in, in a tough relationship that I'm fighting with inside my own heart. Even as I'm trying to figure out how to navigate the tough relationship, I'm also struggling with bitterness and pride. Or maybe to have people praying that um, God would free me from the temptations to lust and pornography or, or the way that I'm looking at other people. If there's other brothers and sisters who really know what's going on, and I'm trying to wrestle in my own heart throughout the week with this, to know that other people are praying, God, free that sin. Uh, free Matt from that sin. Reduce the power. Defang that sin in his life. Give him victory over it. That is a gift. Many of you tell me um, that you pray for me and for our other ministry staff and elders here at the church regularly. I can't tell you what that means to us. And thank you for it. And let me encourage you, please, this is an open invitation to follow this exhortation. And whatever else you pray for, and there's a hundred things you can pray for for the leaders of this church. But every single leader of this church, most especially the one talking right now, is a sinner. So you can pray that God would help us overcome the sin in our lives that we're facing, maybe today, maybe this very week, maybe we're not even aware of it and we need to be. What a gift to have people that are in the fight together that way. So, we pray confidently because we belong to God. We pray confidently because we're asking God for what he already says he wants. And then that leads to this third and final point. This confident prayer comes packaged with a potent promise. A potent promise. God will act. By the way, this promise is really important, I think, for understanding the whole passage. In verse 16, he says, the brother sees someone committing a sin, he shall ask, and God will give him life. That is the sinning brother. He will. He'll act. He'll, he'll move. He will empower that other Christian to work against the reality of sin in their life. And he repeats it uh, later in verse 18, just drop down a little bit. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's a point he made extensively. We preached a whole sermon about it, so he just summarizes it here. But now he follows the logic, logical conclusion. Since we know that, he says, we know that the one born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. It's kind of a fun little play on a phrase there. First John says, the one born of God, meaning Christians, will be protected by the one born of God, meaning the Son of God, capital S, Jesus Christ himself. You see, if you recall back when we were talking about what it meant to have God's seed in us in chapter 3 and, and, and someone who's born of God doesn't continue to sin back in chapter 2 and all these different things, over and over we're making the point that when somebody becomes a Christian, God's spirit moves in them. We have union with Christ. The power of God is at work in our lives to actually make us more holy. Well, if I know that's true of me, then that also means that's true of you if you're a Christian. And so this becomes a, a triple layer of confidence when I'm praying for you in your sin because I assume, I believe God is already at work in your heart. 
That's why I have triple confidence to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ in their victory over sin. First, I'm confident he's listening to me because I'm his son. Second, I'm confident he's listening to me because I'm praying for what he's already clearly said he wants. Lastly, I'm praying, I'm confident that because I'm praying for something he says he's already doing in your life. He is at work in you to give you the power to overcome sin. This is a call to steadfast confidence in prayer for one another against sin. I had to ask myself, again, how often, this is, I found this personally both exhilarating and somewhat convicting this week. Um, so I'm like, how, how often does that characterize the way I pray for my Christian friends, my brothers and sisters, and members of my church, the Christians that I pray for? Is it characterized this way? And the answer is probably somewhat, sometimes. But, you know, I think of, of how often I pray for people maybe in, in a real difficult relationship, often a marriage, sometimes an extended family relationship or work relationship. And, you know, it's the kind of situation that th- those things are almost always really complex and complicated. And, and usually people don't get into those tough situations overnight. And so they're, they're, they're really complicated. And it's like, okay, I can see um, this person struggling. Maybe they've even asked me to pray for this situation. And so I'm praying and sometimes I'm like, wow, I can, I can see all the complexity. And so I'm praying, God, would you change the circumstance? Would you change people's hearts? And like in my head, I know God has what it takes to do that. But deep down inside, like, do I have confidence that he's really going to work in a way that's going to make a difference? I, if I'm honest, sometimes it's like, ah, God, I pray that you would help somehow fix this situation. But man, I can be pretty fatalistic about the odds. Because it just looks, the mountain looks so tall. There's been so much pain. There's been so much um, just built-in difficulty in the situation. It's like, I just can't even, I can't even in my mind begin to untangle it for this person. And they're right in the middle of it. How could they possibly untangle it? And I can start to get kind of fatalistic about it. The problem with that is, I'm looking at the situation I'm looking at the people, I'm looking at sin that may be involved, and I'm not looking at God, not when I'm thinking that way that I just described, which is weird because I'm praying to God the whole time, right? You'd think I would be thinking about God, but it's like, am I focused on what I think can be done in the situation? Or can I pray with this kind of confidence John is talking about? I know I'm God's son. I know I'm praying for something he wants, and I know this person has God's spirit in them as well. I believe that, so... Do I believe somebody can out the cross? No. <laughs> no, of course not. I know there's no sin that's, that's too big that, that Jesus' sacrifice isn't enough to cleanse it. Such a thing doesn't exist. I know that God can move mountains. I know that God can change hearts. That's the only reason I'm a follower of his. Because he changed my heart. Do I have confidence that God is working in them? I don't know the outcome. That's up to God but I can have confidence that he is moving. I think that's what John is getting at here. All of this is an expression of our love for one another. When the gospel gospel clarity produces confidence that I belong to him, it leads us to love one another in ways that we're praying for each other, confident that God is working. That allows us, I think, to maybe clarify verses 16 and 17. I promise we get back to that. Let me do that now. He says in those verses... 
If anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. And then he goes on, he clarifies. Now to those commit sins, this is to those that commit sins not leading to death. There is sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. What, did he just tell us not to pray for somebody? All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. What in the world (laughs) is going on here? Well, not surprisingly, there's a couple of different major ways people have understood this. I think, um, just for the sake of time, the the understanding of this that makes the most sense within the context of the passage or what he's probably getting at is the idea that the sin that leads to death, for whatever reason he chose those words, most likely refers to any one of the numerous ways a person can reject the one only genuine gospel of Jesus because it's the only path to life, according to the Bible. Sometimes when people reject the gospel, it's really obvious and clear. They're like, I've heard the message of Christianity. I get it. I don't believe it. I'm not a Christian. It's, it's really obvious. But it's not always that obvious. A lot of times, very religious people reject the genuine gospel, and we do it by changing the gospel a little bit or changing it enough that it's not actually the real gospel anymore. And the reason I think that's what's going on here is because that's the whole premise of this entire book that was written. Uh, The Apostle John's writing in the first century originally to clarify what the real gospel is as opposed to counterfeits because there were counterfeits running around the church back then. And they weren't coming from so-called outsiders. They were coming from insiders. We saw that in chapter 1. People that had grown up in the church, people that had grown up under the real gospel and had gotten a position of influence and teaching, and then they started teaching other Christians, well, here's what the real gospel is, but the stuff they were saying wasn't really lining up with the real gospel, hence the book of 1 John. He wants to help us see the difference. And what he's saying is, you know what, they're not just tweaking or or polluting the real gospel. They're changing it. They're rejecting the gospel by preaching to you a false one. If you listen to them and bank your life on what they're saying, that only leads to death. Because only the true gospel of Jesus can lead to forgiveness of sin and life. Now, if that's basically right or pretty close to right, I think it is, um, then maybe it makes a little bit more sense as to what's going on with these verses. Because remember I said a moment ago, the promise that John makes is important. He says you can pray confidently because you're a Christian, because you're praying for God's will, but also there's this promise that God is already at work in the life of this other person, and so he will give them the power to overcome sin. That's the promise. But it's, that promise is predicated on the belief that this person already has the Spirit of God in them. In other words, the promise is predicated on the belief that the person you're praying for is actually a Christian. Somebody who's rejected the gospel isn't. So I think what he's saying here is, um, I'm not making this promise about praying in the case of people who aren't even Christians, like these false teachers who are believing a false gospel. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm telling you, you can pray for conf- with confidence that God is going to move when you're praying for God to overcome sin in the lives of your fellow believers because you know he's already at work in their lives. Can't make the same promise of outcome for people in whose lives God is not already at work. Does that mean he's telling us not to pray for people who aren't Christians? No, I don't think that's it at all. Um, the word choice, again, reads pretty funny in the English, but if you look at it pretty clearly... Um, He says at the end of verse 16, you know, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. He doesn't say don't pray for that, whatever exactly it is. He simply says, this promise that I'm saying this is this confidence that you can have doesn't apply to that one. That's not the kind of praying I'm talking about. So if that's right, what do we do with all of that? Well, first of all, we pray with great confidence for one another. We've already talked about that in our struggle against sin. That's part of how we love one another. We do it regularly. How then should Christians pray for somebody who either isn't a Christian 
or maybe somebody about whom we're not sure. We don't know. I, I would probably suggest we pray for them much the same way. We, we pray that, that the, the hold that sin has in the life of a person would be loosened by the Holy Spirit of God, that he would defeat sin in their life, or to use a metaphor that's often used in the Bible, the, the blinders that sin has put over a person's eyes would be removed so that they can see the gospel for what it is, true and beautiful. We pray that God would grant them the gift of faith and repentance if he has not done so already. We maybe can't pray with the same confidence that he definitely will because he's already at work in their lives, but that doesn't mean we don't still pray the same thing. But for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, we pray that God would move one another to confession of sin, like in 1 John 1, 9, chapter 1, verse 9, to receive his forgiveness and to experience the kind of cleansing that only he can bring from the inside out. It's part of how we love one another and we can pray it confidently. Let's pull this whole thing together in the couple of minutes we have left. The last couple of verses, John concludes the entire book. He says in verse 20, We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and that we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Three times in that single verse, he uses the word true. You think he's trying to communicate something? We know him who is true. He is the true God. We know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we can know him who is true. This is true. This is solid. Friends, he's saying if you base your life on the genuine gospel, it is as true, it is as rock solid a a worldview as you can come by. It is as rock solid a basis on which to build your life as you will find anywhere. That's what the Bible's telling us. So build your life there. Anchor your life with confidence there. Drop your roots deeply into that flower bed, into that soil, because then you will grow strong and with great confidence. Three times he also uses the word know. Once it's implied, twice it's stated explicitly. We know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. That is, we may know that we are in him who is true. And in his son, Jesus Christ. You see all this business of truth and confidence? The Bible expects that Christians can be absolutely confident of their standing with God and their eternal future in a way that spills out and and affects the way that we interact with one another. I have to ask myself, am I that confident in my relationship with God? Am I that confident in my future, in this life as well as in the next? Am I that confident even in the present, God's involvement in my life in the present and what's facing me right now? There's so much in this book of the Bible. One of the reasons I love it, although it it can be a challenging read at times, one of the reasons I love it is he's pushing us so hard to say, this kind of confidence is available. I find that refreshing. I find it kind of challenging. I find it exhilarating. I find it freeing. You can be that confident right now. In fact, I think I can go a step further on the basis of what we've read here and say God wants you to be that confident in your relationship with him, your present, 
your future and your eternity and his relationship with you in it. You only get that confidence one way, by banking the enti- your entire life in eternity on Jesus Christ. And that's why he concludes, I think, with the simple statement of verse 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from idols. Don't, don't run down any other road. Don't fall in love with any other false ideas and worship any other gods. They're gonna let you down. Be clear about what the real gospel is because you know what? Each one of these false gospels is kind of an idol. I, I think that's the implication of what he's saying there. I mean, some idols were physical. They're like statues and people would have shrines and they would worship them as gods. That was like a physical literal idol, but so often in the Bible, those, those statues that were worshipped become kind of word pictures for any sort of life philosophy, anything that we put in place of God, anything we worship other than God himself, that's an idol. You think of these three roads that we've kept talking about throughout this book, that so often our natural tendency is to either go down the road of shaming or striving or settling. Shaming is where I'm just constantly looking at myself and how I don't measure up. That's kind of an idol in a way. Because if I'm constantly running down the road of shame, then I'm holding on to my unworthiness instead of holding on to Jesus' worthiness in my place. That's the gospel. The road of striving is the same thing. Some of us are less inclined to be stuck in shame and instead we say, boy, when I realize I don't measure up, I'm gonna go work harder at it. I'm gonna achieve. I'm gonna win. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna make this better. And that road of striving is holding on to my own ability to improve and accomplish instead of holding on to what Jesus has accomplished for me in my place. That's the gospel. You see, these roads pull us away from the true gospel. They're idols. And even that that road of settling, that road of saying, well, this is the best I can do. Hopefully it's good enough for God. Um, I know I'm not what I should be, but I'm just not going to worry about it too much. I'll just keep trying to get better, whatever. That's kind of holding on to my own comfort in the status quo instead of holding on to the incredible comfort and joy of the fathomless love and the eternal glory of Christ Jesus that is available only in the gospel. These are all idols. They pull us away. This book of scripture has encouraged us to sink our foundations deeply into the bedrock of the true gospel because only then will we find the confidence that leads us to love one another in word, in prayer, and in action. I want to wrap up this whole study of 1 John with a little bit of time of reflection as we move back into worshiping God in song. We're going to respond now to, as a congregation to what we've, we've heard from the Bible. And I, I'd like to ask the worship team to come back up here and get ready to lead us in song. And as they're doing that, um, I want to encourage us to take uh, a few moments. What we're going to do is just really simple, not super awkward or anything, but I want to, I want to create some space quietly. Sandy will just play um, some music in the background here. And I want to give us a little bit of time to just reflect. And, and maybe here's what I would encourage us to reflect on. However, God may be leading you in this moment to respond based on what you've seen in his word. Maybe just take a moment to reflect. Uh, pray silently where you're at. Uh, we'll have, a, like I said, just about a minute of just kind of quiet reflection. Uh, and then I'll bring us back together and we'll sing to God. Um, if you're not 100% sure right now what to reflect on, let me suggest um, reflecting on which one of those roads you tend to most naturally travel down. The shame road, the striving road, I'm going to do it myself, or the settling road, and why that may be the case. As you're reflecting on that, maybe just silently pray that God would change that in you so that you can anchor yourself not on your unworthiness, but his worthiness, not on your ability, but his ability, not on your comfort, but on his glory. Lastly, 
Maybe there's a, a fellow Christian brother or sister in Christ and you know they're struggling with sin. And you need to pray for them confidently that God will free them from that and save them from it. So however God would lead you, let's just take a moment. Just, I'd encourage you maybe to bow your heads or close your eyes or whatever, just to avoid distractions. It's just a time to reflect and to pray silently to God as he would lead you. And in a moment, I'll bring us back together. Let's do that.